you remember Mr. Dan Brown, right? Okay. Um, well, about the time I had a little career shift, there was uh, this guy out there with a book. Uh, and the book was uh, hugely influential, kicking up a lot of dirt. Um, and it raised a lot of things that I'll be perfectly honest, even though I went to seminary at Perkins, I could not answer the questions that Dan Brown was raising. Honestly did not know. Were the Gnostic Gospels the original Gospels? I didn't think that was right, but I didn't know for sure. Did Constantine really change things? Did the Council at Nicaea do a bait-and-switch type of thing? And so that began a process for me of trying to figure out what in the world was true. And so I began to do some readings and stuff. So over the last 10 years, that's just been something I've done. The project we're going to launch into is actually a bigger project than the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to start with the Old Testament, but it's really a three-part project. Uh, the real goal is this, kind of that Dan Brown thing. What's true? What is the truth about our faith? What is the truth about what we where we come from? And, and you know what is behind all that? And who we are as Christians? What does our faith actually consist of? And how did it come to be the way it is? And of course, with that, we need to look at, at, at several things. That's what we're going to do. The obvious place to start, we are in fact Christianity. So the obvious place to start is with Jesus of Nazareth, to start with Jesus the Christ. So we need to understand who Jesus is, but you can't just sort of drop in on that and start there because Jesus has a context. And he comes out of that context. And so we need to understand that context. If we really want to know who he is, what is the meaning of what he did? When Jesus grabbed 12 disciples, not 11, not 13, he was sending a message. In the first century AD, that message had a very specific meaning. What was that meaning? When he, yeah, 12 tribes. When he talked about the kingdom of God, which, by the way, is a word that's not found in the Old Testament except one time. Why did he come proclaiming the kingdom of God? Why did he do the things that he did? Why did he say the things that he did? All of which makes sense if we return Jesus to the context he's in. What does it mean to have faith in him? What does it mean to proclaim him Messiah and Lord? So that's the centerpiece. But by necessity... You can't just drop in, do the Jesus thing, and pull back out. you got to look at what happened before, and you got to look at what happened after. And, of course, it's the after stuff that Dan Brown was getting into. If we really want to understand who Jesus is, we first of all need to understand the world out of which he came, the context. Anybody, you know, if you, you, know, if you read this kind of stuff, they'll tell you, context is everything. Context is everything. Because things always make sense in a particular context. We need to understand the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is the larger picture context out of which Jesus came. And we need to understand the faith of Israel. Now that's a big do. Because it's a couple thousand years, you know, and, and we're going to uh, focus on some particular things. We need to understand the ministry of Jesus and light of his world. And finally getting around to the stuff that Dan Brown kicked up, once Jesus came, once people had faith in him, how did we get from faith of Jesus to faith in Jesus? 
how do we get from Jesus and the disciples and being a minority movement within Judaism to becoming the largest world religion that we've ever known and having the beliefs that we have today. And so uh, what we're really talking about is a three-part project this fall, Old Testament. This spring, the life and teachings of Jesus. Next fall, carry the story forward up through probably about the 8th century. But today we want to begin with the Old Testament, the world that gave us Jesus. Um, and we just want for a minute here to think about the significance of the Old Testament itself. Fundamental to our faith. And by the way, you probably know this. We had to fight for this. In the early centuries, there was a fairly large number of people who felt that we should divorce our faith from the Old Testament. We should divorce our faith from the faith of Israel, and we should divorce our faith from the God of Israel. Have you ever seen those signs on roads? We're a New Testament congregation. We're a New Testament church. Now, that kind of thinking is out there. As though the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is so great, there could not possibly be continuity. Okay. Our faith in the early centuries made a very critical decision. We stand on the Old Testament. Our faith is grounded in the faith of ancient Israel. Um, that the story of Israel is, in fact, our story. A good piece of our story. Matter of fact, most of our story. We see this affirmed in the earliest Christian writer. I know that we've looked at this passage from 1 Corinthians before, uh, and that you can mine it for multiple things. We're going to mine it for a particular thing here. This is the earliest summary that survives of what it means to be Christian. This is the earliest known statement of what it, the Christian faith is all about. This is within one generation of the death of Jesus. Uh, Paul started many congregations. He started the one at Corinth. They're a little fuzzy on the concept. So he has to write them and remind them. This is what he says. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news. What's the Greek word for good news? Gospel. You remind you of the gospel I proclaim to you, in which also you stand, through which you are being saved for I handed to you as first importance what I had in turn received. So he's putting a little weight here. He's putting a little significance. This, this, is, this is heavy stuff. This is important stuff. This is it. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he, had, he was buried. And then he adds, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So for Paul, first generation Christian, the core of our faith, the core of what it means to be Christian, that gospel that we talk about, uh, in which we stand, as he reminded them, by which we're being saved, and that thing of first importance is simply this. Jesus' death and life and resurrection have meaning. They have meaning for us. And where would you go to find where that meaning is? Where would you go to interpret what that's about he tells us that the key is the scriptures now paul is saying this in a day and time when there is no new testament he's writing it okay it will be a hundred years later before his letters become scripture the gospels have not been written yet not even mark okay so what are the scriptures the scriptures the old testament the scriptures of israel the hebrew bible this is the scriptures he's referring to uh, what we today call the Old Testament, or that new term that's sort of being used is the Hebrew Bible. Now, not only is this affirmed in 
Paul, but if you go to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to see a very similar point made. By the way, what, is the, what do most scholars say the first gospel was? Mark, okay? Let's go to Mark, the earliest gospel we have. And by the way, Mark primarily is written to a Gentile congregation, some Jews there. So you would think he's not going to be big on playing up the Old Testament, but he does. The beginning of the good news, and by the way, with him it is, first gospel. He gets the, the, the pride of place. The good news, the gospel about Jesus, the Christ. Everybody remember what that word means? Yeah, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Meshach, Messiah, um, which, is, by the way, you, where would you find the meaning of that word? Old Testament, son of God. Some people sometimes say this is a Greek deal. No, it's not. In the Old Testament, the son of God is a term used particularly for the king. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah. So Mark is saying, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. That is the claim we make. And by the way, if you want to know where that you can find out about that, Isaiah is not a bad place to stop. Uh, so Paul, just like Paul, Mark is convinced that the key to understanding our faith is the faith of Israel. The key to understanding the New Testament is the Old Testament, which is, of course, why we're going to begin at this place. Now, if you just take the Christian Bible today, it's made up of two testaments, unless you've got a Catholic Bible, then you've got three parts. By the way, only recently were, the, were those books taken out and separated. Uh, but it's literally built on the Hebrew Scriptures. For example, um, for the first 150 years or so, at least by the year 120, up to the year 120, the only Scriptures that existed were the Hebrew scriptures. So what's Jesus going to be using? What's Paul going to be using? What are the disciples using? What is the first, second, third, and fourth generations of Christians going to be using? They're going to be using that. Now today we have a Bible that's richer. We've added 27 books and we've added a New Testament. Were, were those all hmm? first They're committed to writings. We know third century B.C. from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Like the great scroll of Isaiah is 3rd century, about 210, 220 B.C., in writing. Now, most people can't read, but if you went to a synagogue or a temple, you would have it read to you, and then you would have access to it, right? By word count, our Bible is 80% Old Testament, 20% New Testament. That should tell you something. You might not want to skip the majority of the Bible, Okay. In addition, approximately one-third of the New Testament is made up of quotations or allusions to stories. I mean, Jesus is going to be talking about what? The law, the Torah, the prophets. What's Paul going to be talking about? The law, the Torah, and the you know, it goes on and on with that. Uh, the New Testament quotes, refers to, and alludes to the New Testament nearly 3,000 times. If you take the New Testament out, I mean, Old Testament out, what's left? Not much, okay? So, obviously, for many reasons, the Old Testament is the place we need to spend some time. So as we journey through it this fall, um, I'm to just be real honest with you and give you a feeling for how we're going to approach this because there's many, many ways to do that and this sort of truth in advertising. If you decide you don't want to go where we're going, that's fine, but at least you'll know where we're going. We're going to do two things in this study that maybe are not done in some studies you've seen before. 
The first is we're going to deal with how we approach the Old Testament because if truth be known, you can study the Bible in a lot of different ways, right? Many, many different ways. For example, probably the most common way that people will go to the Bible is devotionally. I'm going to read the scripture and I'm simply going to ask this question. What is God saying to me today through this, through this passage? And I would bet that for most Christians, this is the majority of Bible study. And there's nothing wrong with it. It is an authentic, legitimate way of approaching the scripture. Another way is theologically, where you're going to read the scripture, but what you're really concerned about is, what does it say about God? What does it say about us as human beings? And what does it say about the relationship between God and us? That's a theological Bible study. And that there's nothing wrong with that. That's a beautiful way to study the Bible. Thematically, you could take a great theme of the Bible. What would be a theme? Redemption. We could look at scripture. What's another one? Love. Covenant. Forgiveness. You know, great themes of scripture. And you can go through and do that. You can read it as story. You can just read it as narrative. We do this a lot with our children. You know, the, you know, the Bible's full of great stories. The story of Jesus is often called the greatest story ever told. You know, I would argue that the Bible contains the greatest story ever told. It's, it's, you know, it, it's full of narrative, full of story. You could approach it as types of literature. You could look at it for wisdom literature, prophetic literature, law, apocalyptic, all kinds of things in there. You could go book by book. Now, that would take us probably about the next 15 years. Okay, there's a lot of stuff there. Okay, or you can look at it historically. You know me, so you know what we're doing, right? Uh, <laughs> no surprises there. Historically in two cents. One is historical context to make sense of the story in light of the best we can reconstruct of what actually was going. And the other is historically the Bible narrative, how much of it is hist hist history and how much of it, it might be various type of things. We're obviously not going to try to cover everything and we're not going to go over every book. Um, we will look at the historical books, the narrative, and we will look at the prophets because they shed light on that. We'll be quoting from Psalms and Proverbs and, and many of the writings kind of things, but sort of going with the main story. We're going to follow that narrative. We're going to be dialoguing with archaeology and the best contemporary scholarship that's out there. And by the way, you probably already know this. We are in the golden age right now, okay? In the last 15 years, Archaeology and the historical understanding of the Bible has been turned on its head. It's been turned on its head twice since 1970. 1970 was the negative. The last 10 years has been the positive. We know more today than we have ever known. And the rate at which the information is coming in is absolutely staggering. And so, so the, the, the literature is flowing, and I've been trying to work through it. Uh, we want to determine as best we can, and it's not always easy, what can we actually know historically? Now, knowing what did or did not happen can be surprisingly difficult, okay, particularly in certain parts of the Bible. Because most of the Bible, at least part of the Bible, and I'd say especially the earlier part, the further you go back in time, the more difficult it is to determine what happened historically. The events that are happening near the time of Jesus, piece of cake. Genesis 1, not so easy, okay, you know. <laughs> Actually, Genesis 1 through 11, not so easy. And actually, until they arrive in the promised land, not a lot to work with, okay? This is Molly Meinhardt from the Biblical Archaeological Society. You may be familiar with this magazine. 
I just thought this was a great quote. The greatest challenge for anyone trying to know what did or did not happen, which is actually the task that we're going to be kind of working with here, is that the Bible interweaves the historical with the theological. Doesn't even differentiate. Just throws it in the blender and hits frap, you know, just all together, you know. <laughs> the mystical with the verifiable often in the same sentence. That makes it a little hard sometimes. Sometimes, let's be honest, a story is just a story. Jesus told what? Parables. They are stories that carry intense truth. Jesus is not the only one who tells parables. Jesus is not the only one who tells stories. Great rabbis have mentioned um, to the little Jewish yeshiva boys that there's, there's God made two kinds of people. For people who are intelligent and above average, you know, that God creates stories because you get to use your imagination and you can, you can inject yourself in there and it's wonderful. For idiots and dunderheads, God gave commandments. Just do it. You know, you have to understand it. Just do it or don't do it kind of thing. Sometimes a story is just a story. In a story, the truth does not lie in whether or not it happened. And if we get off into whether or not it happened, sometimes we might miss the point, you know. Um, at other times, at many other times, a story is actually grounded in historical events, events, by the way, that we can document. And knowing the history, knowing the context, helps us to understand the scripture better, helps us to understand actually what the message is. Now, exploring the Bible historically, in the last 30 years, let's give it 40 years, since, since about 1970, has become really, really interesting and controversial. Uh, there are a wide variety of views, as you probably know. Uh, you can get books that say we can know nothing. And you can get books that say every word in the Bible is historically true. And then mainline scholarship is, you know, somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, some question the validity of even asking, is there anything in the Bible historically true? They just say, don't go there. Don't do that. I'm not talking about liberals. I'm talking even about Dallas Theological and really, really conservative people. Until the 1970s, it was commonly assumed, even by the majority of scholars, that the Bible was more or less pure history. Not everyone, but mainstream, there was just kind of a consensus when you went to the Bible, you know, you just kind of assumed it happened. Uh, biblical archaeology looked for the data to support the Bible. There was something, there was a term that emerged, biblical archaeology. Now, this is a bad word in scholarship today. But this is old school. Biblical archaeology used to say, okay, we're going to do it with the Bible in one hand. Do you remember what we had in the other? The shovel, the spade, Bible and spade. So the idea was you go and you find the story, Battle of Jericho. We know where Jericho is. Let's go dig it up, you know. <laughs> and what do we expect to find? Verification that what's told in the narrative actually happened. And that's the way uh, archaeology was done for a long time. Now, this is Jericho, by the way, and you can see they've been digging in it for quite a while, about 100 <laughs> years. Uh, recently, there's been two revolutions in this. Uh, it is now commonly recognized that much of the Bible's narrative, particularly the Pentateuch, particularly the earlier part, uh, is not supported by archaeology. We have no archaeology. We have nothing that we can go dig up or refer to. Uh, we don't have anything that's of historical archaeological significance 
for much of the period of the Bible, and pretty much, with a few notable exceptions, up to about 800 B.C. in Palestine. By the way, anybody want to guess what happened about 800 B.C. Palestine? Writing. We get David and Solomon and kings, and what do kings have? They have scribes, and what are they obsessed with? Keeping records, and we consolidate. You know, until then, we had Egypt, and we had, you know, Mesopotamia. We could look at their writings, but we had no writings from Palestine itself. Uh, it's also become clear that there are occasions when the evidence we do have runs directly counter to the biblical narrative. Okay, Jericho, great story. Then you dig it up, and you find out the period of time in which the story is set, turns out Jericho is not even occupied. Nobody lives there. Problem. <laughs> nobody lived there for four or five hundred years before, and nobody lived there four or five hundred years afterwards. Okay, which tells you something. We're probably not dealing with a historical narrative. We're probably dealing with a narrative, a story. A is another one, and A is interesting. You may know what the word A means in Hebrew. The ruin. We conquer the ruin. Ain't we bad? You know. So there's some evidence there that sometimes that we're looking at were really stories. The view that everything in the Bible is pure history will not stand. And that's accepted all across the theological spectrum. It's become untenable. Beginning in the 1970s, you may know this, this resulted in what's known as the minimalist approach. Some have called it the nihilist approach. You know, what can we know? We can know nothing, you know. For minimalist, if, you if something could not be documented, if I can't go dig it up, or if I dig and don't find it, it never happened, okay? So, you wind up with uh, them thinking that the absence of data was proof that there was no data. Now, is that true? No. So happens one of the things they've been saying is David never existed because we never found anything about David until they found the Tel Dan Stella in the 1990s. Turns out there was a David, never mind. Uh, <laughs> but the idea was, if you can't document it, it's pure fiction. So for minimalists, you get things like, there never was an Exodus. Ever seen that on TV? Yeah, the Exodus never happened. David did not exist. Or my favorite was, there was no ancient Israel. <laughs> That's a stretch, by the way. Uh, everything up through Second Kings. Everything up through, really, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the beginning of the Restoration, everything before the exile was dismissed by some people. Not everybody, by some as myth or just story. Uh, in reaction, even many conservatives have responded that the historical does not matter. How many of you all know Billy Abraham? Billy Abraham is one of the people who will argue that the historical is irrelevant. Okay, And Billy Abraham is a conservative. Okay, but the argument is what's really important is what? The theological, what it teaches us about that. And I think the thought there is don't ground your faith in what may or may not happen because the evidence of what may or may not happen may shift and that could undermine your faith. So, I mean, this is a very, very common view. Uh, all that matters is the theology. Now, just a real quickie, the historical issue in this is not just what's dug up, or not dug up, but how do you interpret what's dug up or not dug up? Uh, the meaning of the evidence, 
or its absence. And so you get people who get widely divergent kinds of views about all this. Little picture where we stand before we move on. Evidence, archaeologically and historically, is limited. Not non-existent, but limited before about 800 B.C. for some very good reasons. Uh, though some stellar pieces of evidence exist. Have you ever heard of the Merneptha Stella? Merneptha is Pharaoh of Egypt at exactly the time that the Bible says the, the, the Israelites enter the promised land to conquer it. 1220 B.C. The Merneptha Stella here down in the lower right-hand corner, he brags that he came in and he whooped up on the Israelites. And he mentions that they're not, they don't have cities. It's not a, a city like many are. They are a sort of a wandering nomadic group, which is exactly what the books of Joshua and Judges tell you. So that becomes an anchor. Another one is the Tel Dan Stella. Now they've highlighted it in white down there at the end, but what that says in Hebrew is the house of David. This is actually the king of Moab, who at a particular point shortly after the period of David says that he came and whooped up on Omri, king of Samaria, of the house of David. So, and by the way, there's two other, uh, other archaeological references to this. There's three of the neighboring kingdoms who say that just after the period of David himself, that the house of David existed as an entity. Hello, you know. And that changed archaeology in terms of what people thought. We'll look at those. Uh, from the 800s down, writing begins to appear in Israel because what it appears is that David and Solomon, they established kingship, and then later the two kingdoms of Israel and, and Judah uh, began to preserve stuff, to put stuff in writing, and some of that does begin to survive. Um, today, 2013, minimalism is not only in decline, it's almost gone. It's never totally gone because some people just won't give up, but it's almost gone because it simply won't hold water. We're finding more and more stuff. And by the way, the stuff is coming tsunami. It's coming in now very, very rapid. Um, and so we get this more nuanced view that has emerged. We're not arguing that everything in the Bible is historical. Some of it is story, but there's a lot there that is. This view holds that while it's true that we currently do not have any archaeological uh, evidence of Genesis and Exodus, while it's also true that a lot of what's in the Old Testament is story, and there's nothing wrong with that, and while it's true that even some of the historical stuff, like Kings and Chronicles, may be written sometime after the events actually happen, maybe as long as 500 years later, uh, there is, in fact, a reliable historical core. Now, I'm not out on a limb here. This is mainline contemporary scholarship, okay? It's supported by archaeology. It's supported by what we know of the historical period. This is a quote. By the way, William Deaver is a, is a machine cranking out books. Uh, this is one of them. Uh, what did the Bible writers know and when did they know it? Uh, his books are very easy to read. This is what he says. There's nothing inherently improbable. This is talking about even the period where we don't have any archaeology. He's saying if you look at the story that we don't have any archaeology for, uh, one of the things they say is it seems to reflect accurately the period and what we do know of the period. So there's nothing inherently improbable in the main outline of the Bible stories that now stands. 
There's no reason, for instance, to dismiss the era of David, which was dismissed, but we can no longer do that because we have the Teledan Stella. Despite many embellishments and later redactors, editors, the main elements of the story probably derive from ancient sources and depict actual conditions of the time. Even when we don't have the archaeology, contextually, the main narrative fits and makes sense in that time period. The overall historical and chronological framework of the Book of Kings, much of Chronicles, those are the two major histories in the Old Testament, and most of the prophets who overlap that actually reflects what we know of the archaeological pillars. So we, we have some semi-solid ground to stand on. For this reason, we're going to go through the Bible story. We're going to look for the relevant historical anchors. Um, been reading a lot on that, so I want to present those to you so you can kind of know what's going on there. Uh, both the narrative as a whole and the individual stories. And this is going to now bring us to the second focus. We can't do everything. Darn it. Okay? So we're going to have to focus. Uh, we're going to focus. We're going to do it all. We're going to do Genesis 1 to the end. But we're going to spend more time and more energy and more focus in a particular area. By the way, which one would you be more interested in? I'm thinking closer to Jesus. I would really want to know the world that Jesus came out of. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We'll cover it. Genesis to Malachi and, by the way, beyond. Because did some significant stuff happen after Malachi. A lot. Like the Greeks, the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, the Romans. And there's material in the Bible about that. Uh, we're going to give the most attention to the latter part, the period that brings us up to Jesus. This is known as the Second Temple Period. It's also known as uh, early Judaism. Uh, this period, in fact, breaks down into two periods itself. That are and what's interesting is these periods are not known that well by most people. Uh, but it turns out they're the most important. The parts we know the least about are, in fact, the most significant. And that is one of the emerging things that's been happening in scholarship the last 10 or 15 years is the realization this stuff's really, really important. This stuff explains Jesus. It explains Paul. It explains the birth of the church. But it's stuff that even the textbooks have skipped over. First, the first of two pieces of this, we have a 200-year period that includes, and it really dates from the destruction of, of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was sacked three times, but the middle one's when it was actually destroyed, the temple was destroyed. And then they go into exile for 70-ish years. And then they come back, Ezra and Nehemiah, we have got restoration. And that's going to be roughly 600 to roughly 400. Uh, this is a period that is largely ignored by the Bible. For example, if you're reading the Bible and you're reading Kings or Chronicles, where does it end? With Jerusalem in flames and in dust. It goes a little bit beyond that, but not much. And then we skip, and the next book, Kings Ends, Deuteronomic history ends, but Chronicles continues with Ezra and Nehemiah. And Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of them coming back, restoring, rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah rebuilds the walls, and the state of Israel is sent forward again. Um, interestingly, when I was in college, and even, even today, most textbooks skip this period. Skip the same period the Bible kind of skips. For example, Anchor Bible Dictionary, the definitive Bible dictionary in the world, five volumes, massive, does not have an article 
on the exile. Skips from the destruction of Jerusalem to the restoration. Guess what? Most of the Old Testament is written, we now believe, during the exile. The prophets are correlated. The Torah comes together and becomes the Pentateuch. The Deuteronomic history is put together. The chronicler writes. All this stuff is happening. We can now document this. But it's skipped over. Ironically, this is the most exciting thing. I mean, if you're going to get into biblical archaeology and historical, you get into these books. I mean, this is where everybody starts foaming at the mouth. I mean, they just get really excited. There's a lot going on, and we, we can share that. Uh, and what we're doing is literally rewriting textbooks. One of the big arguments now is if you write a textbook on the history of ancient Israel and you skip the exile, that book is not worth flip, Okay you have skipped something of such significance that it simply invalidates the book second temple period is radically unlike the early periods of the old testament there's a line that goes down the center of the old testament and that line is when jerusalem was destroyed and before that is one world and after that is an entirely fundamentally different world i did not really realize that uh, it's a hinge the world that jesus came out of is not the world of Israel before the destruction. The world that Jesus comes out of is a different world. It is the world of the second temple period. Um, with the Exxon restoration, we literally have a world come to an end. It is destroyed. It is gone. It does not come back. Pretty much everything that existed prior to the destruction is not only destroyed, it's gone forever. It's going to be replaced, but it's not going to be replaced with continuity. It's going to be replaced with discontinuity. Another world is born out of the ashes. With these events, the history of Israel comes to an end. All that had been is gone. The people are scattered across the nations in Egypt. You've got, uh, you've got people taken into Babylon three times by the Babylonians. Remember the book of Jeremiah? A whole group flees to Egypt. Babylon and Egypt become the two places in the world where the most Jews live. There are more Jews in Babylon than there are in Israel. There are more Jews in Egypt than there are in Israel. Even when they return from Babylon back, maybe 1% of the ones who are in Babylon come back. Most stay. And the Bible tells us they're doing fine. They didn't want to give up their property. They liked it in Babylon. So we'll look at that. The diaspora. Remember the diaspora? This is where the diaspora begins. The Jews are scattered. After these events, God's people are no longer Israelites. They have a new identity. They have a new name. Remember it? They are Jews. Jews are not Israelites. Israelites are not Jews. They're different. They're radically different. They have a new faith. It is not the faith of Israel. It is a faith that we call Judaism, which will continue to morph even after the second temple is destroyed. What emerges from the ashes of exile is very different. Let me give you four areas. This will be the four last weeks we spend in this series near Christmas. How they understood themselves as God's people is totally transformed. They understood themselves to be God's people in a particular way. Then after the destruction, after the exile, after they're restored, they didn't think of themselves in the same way. It's not just the name changed. Their identity changed. And it's that identity that Jesus is born into. It's a radically different identity. Secondly, how they understood God. 
pretty clear prior to the destruction and the exile the God of Israel was a parochial tribal God he was the God of Israel afterwards he's the universal God of creation Lord of heaven and earth monotheism is born in the exile and the restoration and the beliefs are changed almost how we worshiped before the destruction how did we worship something had to die sacrifice somehow in the exile the synagogue is born somehow in the exile scripture moves to center stage so that even when we rebuild the temple does the synagogue go away does reading scripture go away it stays center stage so and by the way it gives to the form of worship that you and i don't care what venue you're in we're still based on scripture hope for the future prior to the destruction there is no belief in life after death prior to the destruction there is no belief in resurrection and there's no belief in immortality and there's no belief in the soul or any of that stuff afterwards belief and future hope we have in god radically transformed that's worth taking a look at now the exile and restoration are then followed by another 500 year period this is the period that jesus is actually born into and people know even less about this than they do about the exile and the restoration this includes the greek maccabean hasmonean and roman periods when we did the book of daniel we dipped a little bit in here but we were focused on a particular thing we're going to broad stroke it we, but we want to look at this because uh, this is the period that brings us to Jesus. Now, until fairly recently, this was true in the 70s when I was in school. It may have been true for you. Uh, the Old Testament, the belief was, when did the Old Testament end? With whom? Malachi. Okay? So, the story ends with Malachi. By the way, Malachi is 450 years before Jesus. Okay? 420 B.C. Just so you know. The idea was that the Old Testament, which told the story of the history of Israel, came to an end with Malachi about 420 B.C. With Malachi, the curtain comes down. The Old Testament story is finished. We're done. 450 years later, we raise the curtain again. Who do we have? We've got Jesus. Born into a very, very different world. New Testament is a radically altered landscape. For example, in the Old Testament, there are no Pharisees, <coughs> Sadducees, Herodians, Etc. 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 Where did all those groups come from? Well, we now know from doing Daniel they came from the Maccabean period, but they're in this period. When Jesus walks on the stage, it's not the stage that was there when Malachi was there. It's a stage that has developed after Malachi. The very structure of the Protestant Bible gives this impression. For example, in your Bible, you finish reading Malachi and you turn the page. What do you have? Matthew, which implies nothing happened in between nothing significant could god possibly have done anything during those five centuries you know well maybe god could have uh but we get this idea that there's kind of nothing there there's nothing of significance uh, textbooks talk about this period now how many of you remember it was the intertestamental period okay or the other one is between the testaments because we end with malachi we're going to start with matthew so this is somewhere in between these are also commonly called the years of silence. I love that term. Who was silent? God, yeah. Uh, lost years. We can't recover them. Wrong. Yes, we can. 
implying that we really don't know anything. That is so wrong. By the way, Dead Sea Scrolls, flat dab in the middle of that period, okay? 900 documents we can read. Uh, worse, that God wasn't doing anything, ironically, and it is irony, these lost years are the key. If you want to understand Jesus, if you want to understand John the Baptist, if you want to understand the Apostle Paul, the early Christian movement, and the New Testament, if you can get into this period and understand it, you're going to really know what's going on. Um, so we know that just about everything important comes from that period. By the way, this is a, Joel Green is actually from my area. Um, the World of the New Testament, this is a book just published as background for the New Testament. Guess what? It is our course. It's what we're doing for the next 16 weeks. Because the argument here is you've got to understand Second Temple Judaism and in particular, those years of silence to understand and to read the New Testament and to make sense of it. So we begin with a biblical story. And so next week, let's start at the beginning. Bereshi, God created the heavens and the earth. So hope you'll find this exciting.